or Acts chapter 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaeus, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Alamus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Alamus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> uh, good morning, church. The Lord be with you. Now, we are in the midst of the consultancy with Revitalize Australia. I want to encourage all of you to complete the online survey on the health of this church, if you have not already done so. Now, I trust many of you would have met and conversed with Timothy Lau and also with Rod Morris. Uh, they are the consultants at TGCC and at the Christ Church, respectively. Uh, they are backing each other up in their work and in this way, uh, Revitalize Australia uh, will get a big picture of our church and give us an assessment of the health of TGCC. While we await their report, uh, we want to look to scripture to learn what makes a church grow and what makes a church thrive. And so it is fitting this morning that uh, our study on the book of Acts uh, takes us again to the church at Antioch. Because this first century church is a vibrant and flourishing church. And we will do well to emulate the things they do so that, <clears throat> God willing, we too may grow and flourish. Now, I will list seven things, seven things the church at Antioch do that can be helpful for us today. The list is not in any particular order of merit. 
So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Acts chapter 13. And we will begin with the last verse of chapter 12. Now we read that Barnabas and Paul have just returned from Jerusalem. And we know why they went to Jerusalem, because in chapter 11, there was a famine in Jerusalem, and so they raised money, <coughs> and Barnabas and Saul uh, so, uh, took the aid money uh, to deliver the aid money to help the church in Jerusalem to weather out the famine that was affecting them. And now they have returned. So, the first thing we learn about a healthy church is that it is a caring church. It cares for the poor. It cares for the underprivileged, for the marginalized. And a healthy church cares for the disadvantaged because it has the compassion of Christ for those who are in need. So that's the first thing about the healthy church. Now we are also told that Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch with a ministry apprentice in tow. His name is John Mark. And we will learn later that John Mark would train for the ministry under Barnabas. And he would eventually go on to write the Gospel of Mark. And so we can say the second thing about a healthy church is that it is interested in investing its resources to train apprentices for the ministry. So you can tell that a church is flourishing when it trains gospel workers for the harvest field. And so at TGCC, we want to encourage people to consider gospel work as their vocation. And if you know of someone who is interested in ministry apprenticeship, uh, we are happy to consider them. Now the third thing about a healthy church is its leadership. Its leadership is focused in preaching, on preaching and teaching. So verse 1 of chapter 13 tells us about the leadership in the church in Antioch. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetriarch and Saul. Just in case you are wondering whether this Herod the Tetriarch is king uh, tetriarch, no. Herod the Tetriarch is Herod Antipas, the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. So apparently, Menaean is an uh, adopted son of Herod the Tetriarch. Okay, so we are given the names of the leaders. Uh, they are gifted prophets and they are gifted teachers. And they teach the basic truths about the faith. They explain its various doctrines and they exhort the people to live out the Christian ethics. So that's how the believers in the church are to grow and mature in their faith. Uh, what about the gift of prophecy? And I think like the Old Testament prophets, the gift of prophecy is to enable the prophets um, to not so much as to predict the future, but to proclaim God's word. Like the Old Testament prophet, the New Testament prophets also proclaim God's word with a view to strengthen the faith of believers. So prophecy is like preaching. But proclaiming God's word also has a view to turn unbelieving hearts to worship the living God. 
So in other words, the New, Proph uh, New Testament prophets have also the role of evangelizing the lost. And so the fourth thing about the healthy church in Antioch is that it is actively involved in evangelism. And so today at TGCC, we want to be constantly be teaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, so that the people are built up. Uh, we also want to be constantly evangelizing, be involved in evangelism, so that believers or unbelievers are saved and added to the church. The fifth thing about the healthy church at Antioch is that they are a worshipping church. So look at verses 2 to 3. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, um, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, so the church is a worshipping church, and you may say every church worships the Lord, right? So every church will organize a Sunday service. Some may have two or three services. So what is so special about this worship? Well, sadly, in the church, there can be true worship and there can be false worship. Now we know that worship is transformed, or rather, worship is formative. It means that worship changes us. Now, we become like the object of our worship, right? We become like the object of our worship. Now, I remember when I was a teenager, my friends and I, uh, we hero-worshipped uh, Elvis Presley, right? You know who Elvis Presley is. Uh, we would try to imitate his voice and his posture, his dress, his dressing, and his signature hairstyle. Right. And, and we will go to the local barber and ask the barber, uh, can I have an Elvis haircut? Now, of course, we never get anywhere near it. But that is what worship does to you. It changes you. You become like the hero or like the things you worship. And so, if you have been or becoming worldly and becoming idolatrous, you, are, you have not truly worshipped the Lord. On the other hand, if you have become more godly, you know your worship has been true. Now, you may remember when Barnabas was sent back to check on the Christians in Antioch, he found, what did he find in the church? He found evidence of God's grace in their midst because there was true worship. And this is what we will see in our midst. If there is true worship, you and I will become more and more like Christ, more like Christ, more like the Christ we worship. Now, the sixth thing about the church in Antioch is that it is a praying church. It's a praying church. Now, sadly, we admit that we can be more prayerful. We can be more prayerful. 
You may remember that during the pandemic, when we had the midweek prayer on Zoom, not many of us joined in. And now that we try to move it to before the service time at 10.30 on Sunday, well, still only a handful of faithfuls turn up. So why are we not praying as we should? As we learned last Sunday, if prayer is the power God has given to us, why aren't we using this power? Why aren't we using this power to, when we face difficulties, when we face hostilities? Why aren't we using this power when we need heavenly resources to build up the church? Why aren't we making use of this power when we need discernment in making important decisions. You see, if we refuse to use God's power, it only means we are more confident of our own human power. We are confident of our own human wisdom. And we want to use our human power and human wisdom to do the work God has given us. Well, if we do that, we are actually wanting the glory for ourselves because we want to uh, uh, we, we want the glory and we are arrogant to not want God's power. So if, if we do God's work with human power and human wisdom, uh, we, we will not go well. The church that is built on human power, the church that is built on human wisdom will eventually fail. So brothers and sisters, let us be prayerful always. And some of us may want to fast as well. And the Antiochian church had also the habit of fasting and praying. Now, I know that some of you do fast and pray, and you keep that fast inconspicuous, privately. And that is how it should be, because fasting in itself does not make you more spiritual. But when coupled with praying and worshipping, Fasting helps us to focus on the things of God, focus on what God wants us to do, and focus on His will for ourselves and for the church. And it was during the time of worshipping and, and, and fasting that the Holy Spirit called Barnabas and Saul to be missionaries. And when they heard that call, the church further prayed and fasted to confirm Barnabas and Saul's calling. And then they sent Barnabas and Saul off on what would be their first missionary journey. And so this brings us to the seventh thing about a healthy church. Well, we have said that the first thing about a healthy church is that it is a caring church. It tra second, it trains apprentices. Three, it has teaching and preaching leadership. Four, it is actively involved in evangelism. Fifth, it is a worshipping church. Sixth, it is a praying church. And now, the seventh thing, the last but not least thing about healthy church from this morning's passage is that it is a sending church, a sending church, a church a healthy church is, is mission-minded. It wants to send out gospel workers beyond its four walls to plant new churches 
or to take the gospel to where it has never been. Now, history has shown us that when a church is inward-looking and is concerned only about its own affairs, it will soon become a social club and eventually cease to be a church. But when a church is mission-minded, sending out mission workers into the harvest field, that church will thrive, that church will grow, as we see in the church in Antioch. Now, it is this kind of church that we at TGCC want to be. We want to be a sending church. Now, although we have been supporting some partner missionaries, uh, we have yet to send out one of our own into the mission field. Well, that will change when Darren Hindle, and many of you know Darren Hindle, so that will change when Darren Hindle completes all his training in Sydney and readies himself to go off to Japan with OMF. And we will be his home church, and we will be delighted to support him. And over the coming years, the, the Lord willing, we hope to encourage some of you some of you into the ministry and consider even going overseas for gospel work. Because it is exciting when you see the gospel bearing fruit, when you see people getting saved, because we know that God is at work. God is at work to bring salvation to everyone who believes in Christ. But sending out workers into the mission field is not the end goal of our commitment. We cannot say that, oh, well, we have sent them off to foreign land. Uh, our job is done. Okay, no, we can't say that. Because while they are out in the mission field, we must continue to support them. Support them in kind and support them in prayers. Because gospel work is never easy. Mission, work, uh, mission fields are often hard ground to break. And there will always be opposition to the gospel, just like what Barnabas and Saul experienced on the first leg of their missionary journey. And we are told that uh, their first stop is the island of Cyprus. And to get there, Barnabas and Saul, together with um, John Mark, set sail from Seleucia. And you can see from the map on the screen uh, the, the different locations. So the land at Salamis on the eastern part of the island and they go to the local synagogues and preach the gospel. And the gospel is well received. Praise the Lord. That's good. But things change when they get to Paphos, the capital city on the western side of the island and they meet a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And there is irony here. There's irony here. Bar-Jesus means son of salvation. And you would expect someone with that name to lead people to salvation in Christ. But instead, he leads people away from salvation. Why? Because he is a false prophet. He is a false prophet. Now, let's pause here for a moment. Today, we see the same irony 
there are churches and there are church leaders who profess to be Christians and they are supposed to preach the gospel and they are supposed to point people to Christ. And yet, they do the very opposite. They draw people away from the gospel. They draw people away from Christ and they show themselves to be false prophets or false teachers or wolves. So these terms that the Bible uses, these terms belong to the same category. They, they, they do the same thing. Wolves, false prophets, false teachers, they do the same thing. They distort the word of God to suit their own agenda. Or they may dilute the gospel and proclaim a false gospel in order to draw large, large crowds with the promise of health and wealth. Or they may compromise on the clear teachings of Scripture in order to be accepted by the world. And you may know of some of the false prophets who echo the views of the world that you must be true to yourself. Don't let anyone tell you what to do or what not to do. Go with your feelings. Listen to your heart and do it, and you will not be wrong. While this is the biggest lie, never fall for it. Scripture tells us that our hearts are deceitful. And if you follow what your sinful heart tells you to do, you will not be saved. You will only store up judgment for yourself. So don't listen to the false prophets. Listen to what Scripture says. So let's get back to Bar Jesus. How do Barnabas and Saul know that he is a false prophet? Well, it is because Bar Jesus is a sorcerer. He's a sorcerer. He does not proclaim truths about God and he practices magic. And he draws his wisdom and his power not from God, but from the evil one. And Bar Jesus knows it because he's a Jew. The book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament clearly warns against sorcery. And God calls it an abomination. And it is punishable by stoning to death. So this is serious. But Bar Jesus wrongly thinks he's safe outside of Israel. He is in Cyprus, Gentile country. And one of his clients is the ruler of Cyprus, the proconsul Sergius Paulus. And in ancient time, it is not unusual for rulers to seek advice from sorcerers when they, make, uh, when they want to make important decisions like going to war or making a treaty uh, with uh, a, a rival. Now, even today, some politicians are known to consult the horoscope or fortune tellers for success in election. Now, we do not know why Sergius Paulus needed the service of a sorcerer. He is an intelligent man, we are told. Uh, well, he may just be enchanted by the world of magic, but he also wants to know the truth about the God of the Jews. That is why he invites Barnabas and Saul to tell him about the gospel. 
And as Barnabas and Saul begins to explain the truth about Jesus and his resurrection, Bar Jesus, otherwise known also as Elimus, keeps on interrupting. He's objecting to the presentation of the gospel, and we read this in verse 8. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So you can imagine Elimus trying hard to dissuade Sergius from believing in Jesus. Perhaps he was casting doubt on the reliability of the resurrection. Or he may be mocking on the foolishness of the gospel. How can God die for sinful men? And we know that the likely reason why Elimus is opposing the gospel is because he is afraid of losing Sergius as his client, which means that his livelihood is being threatened. And this is often the same reason people oppose the gospel today. They fear that the gospel may interfere with their business or interfere with their or, or, or bring uh, their reputation down or, or break up their relationship or, their, or, or hurt their pride. So they want to have nothing to do with Christianity. Now, isn't this kind of opposition familiar to some of you? Perhaps this was your experience when you became a Christian. Your friends may dissuade you from making the commitment to Jesus and telling you that if you become a Christian, well, you won't be our buddy anymore, right? They threaten you to st by severing off relationship with you. Or your family may threaten you, threaten to disown you. And I know a friend who was evicted out of his house because he chose to be baptized. And I'm sure you know similar stories. So opposition to the gospel is real. So how did Saul respond to Elimus' opposition? Look at verses 9 and 10. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and dis trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Wow, these are strong words of condemnation from Saul. Strong words of condemnation. Well, incidentally, uh, Saul didn't change his name to Paul. Uh, Saul is the Hebrew name. Uh, so Luke, from here onwards, will refer to Saul by his Greek name, Paul. Now today, Paul's language here will be considered abusive. And some people would say Paul was unchristian. Paul was unchristian to call someone child of the devil, whose name means son of salvation. But remember, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So what he said was not slander. What he said was true. Paul was calling a spade a spade. Elymas was a dangerous man, spiritually. And Elymas would lead people to hell. And that was why Paul had to call him out, so that others would avoid his teachings. Now today, it is appropriate to call out false teachers. False teachers who lead people to destruction. While we may be polite and political correctness may persuade us to say nothing, but we cannot keep silent when people's destinies are at stake. And so here are some names you should avoid. Bill Johnson and Battle Music. Joel Austin is the preacher of the prosperity gospel. Benny Haynes, a great charlatan and a fraud. Well, you may say that, well, there are many more, younger ones, yeah. But you may say that, well, it is unchristian. Is it unchristian to call them out? No. You see, Paul not only, I mean, as, as we said, Paul called out Elimus because he was leading people to destruction. So we must call false prophets out so that others will not be tempted to follow their ways. Now, Paul not only called out Elimus, he also pronounced God's judgment on him. And Elimus immediately lost his sight temporarily. Now, you may say, whoa, this is really nasty, isn't it? No, because I think God was gracious to Elimus. Now, God could have struck him dead, and Elimus could be eaten by worms like King Herod was. But God spared him for the moment perhaps to give him an opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus and be true to his name. Now, when Sergius saw what had happened to Elymas, he believed. He believed not because he was afraid he could also be struck blind. No. Verse 12 tells us that he believed because he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He was amazed at the teaching about Jesus. You see, the teaching of Jesus is not just words. It is also power. Power to overcome sin. Power to overcome death. Power to overcome evil. And so here is a totally pagan Gentile hearing the gospel for the first time and seeing the dramatic power encounter as the Holy Spirit overthrew the evil one, Sergius was totally convinced and he believed. Well, last week we learned how the gospel flourished and spread despite the persecution 
And this morning we learn that once again the gospel triumphs over its opposition. The gospel is unstoppable because it is God's power to save. So brothers and sisters, we can be confident of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of great joy. Keep telling people about it. While there may be opposition to your presentation, you may be ridiculed. People may even threaten you. But don't be afraid. Don't be embarrassed. Stay strong. For the Spirit of Christ is in you and with you. You are more than conquerors because the gospel will always triumph. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly ask that you make us into a healthy church. Please raise workers from our midst for your harvest. Grant us the boldness to share our faith in Jesus with conviction and with clarity. We thank you that the gospel is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. So may we never be ashamed of the gospel. May we never be embarrassed by it. And fill us with your spirit so that we will have the right words to say when asked about the reason for the hope we have in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.